Good morning. I'm going to be reading out of Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, and it can be found in page 1120 in your pew Bibles. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought, through, brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For, by, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came into the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for uh, just giving us a place where we can come, hear your word in truth, not spoken of uh, ashamedly. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, just put the words on our pastor's mouth to speak and uh, open our ears and eyes to see and hear. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dave. Good morning. Alphas can be dismissed, and we are going to be back in the Gospel of John in John chapter 19 after our quick break last week. So, movies are a great way to tell stories. Books, they contain lots of words. Uh, verbal stories can include inflections in voice to emphasize certain things, but movies, they mix picture with voice, and when they add in music, you can convey even more uh, sorts of information. And so, the movie Jaws, right? We all know the sound. Dun-dun. Dun-dun. 
And as the story gets more intense, the music adds to the extreme nature of the scenes that are going to come. Dun, 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 dun. It gets quicker and quicker. We know that the guy is eventually going to get eaten by a shark. But dun, 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 dun. And if I've ruined the movie for you, it's 47 years old, so I don't feel bad about that. Uh, if you feel bad that I mentioned that the movie is 47 years old because now you feel like you're old, I do feel bad about that, but there's nothing we can do about it. Well, in our story in John 19 this morning, the intensity is being ratcheted up. The power of the conversations is increasing. The strength of the scenes is becoming prolific. The hatred of Jesus is more and more evident. He will die, and there is no stopping it. The reality of the cruelty towards Jesus, the innocent and perfect Son of God, is heightened this morning during His final trial. So I want you to consider, consider, not consider, consider one question this morning. In your mind, is Jesus innocent or is He guilty? Let's pray before we look at John 19. Father, we thank You that Your great love is displayed for us in the life, the perfect life, and the death, the substitutionary death, and His resurrection from the dead of Your beloved Son that You gave Him because You love us. Father, we ask that you would help us to see that this morning. We thank you, and we ask that you would help us to believe that this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 19, that first paragraph. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me at all, unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
So the chapter has moved from that contrast that we saw in John chapter 18 between Peter and Jesus. And now we see this contrast between Jesus and his accusers. And it starts with a flogging. And this flogging is not PG-13. Flogging, you might be familiar with, is a whipping of one's back. But Roman flogging was to cause the most cruel type of punishment. Jesus would have been tied to a post to the point where his whipping brought him almost to certain death. Within the straps, the Romans were so cruel they would put bits of metal or fragments of bone to rip the flesh off of the man or the woman who would be crucified's back, tearing it apart. Pilate thought Jesus was innocent, so maybe this flogging would settle the Jewish people's hatred of Jesus, and it would leave them alone. But the scene transitions to Jewish soldiers participating in the punishment of Jesus even further. To add to his discomfort, they make this crown of thorns that would be made of long spikes, about 12 inches in length from date palm fronds. And they would push it upon his head, causing him to bleed, sticking the needles of this frond even to his skull, causing him to bleed profusely. And to mock him even further, they put this purple robe on his back, signifying, or at least in their mind, mocking him of being royalty. And the irony here is for us to see. Four days prior, the Jews laid what on the ground as he was entering Jerusalem? Palm fronds, date palm fronds, the same palm fronds that they would get these spikes from. Four days prior, they would shout, Hosanna, as he was entering into Jerusalem. And now, four days later, they are shouting, crucify him. Hail, King of the Jews, in a way to mock him. When in Hosanna, they wanted to put him on a throne. And now, they're mocking because he is not their king. Four days prior, they wanted Jesus as their king. And now, he's not the king they wanted. He was innocent four days ago, but now in their minds, he's guilty. In your mind, is Jesus innocent or guilty? Pilate returns, but he wants to reiterate to everyone within an earshot, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate's the only one who could do anything about it, yet he doesn't. Pilate's passing the blame to someone else. Pilate finds no fault, and he knows the Jews have a list of faults, so he just steps to the side and he says, you guys take care of this. But Pilate becomes an accomplice. You law students in here, you know what an accomplice is. It's a, an aid or an abetter to a crime, whether intentionally or unintentionally. If you help someone or encourage someone or fail to discourage someone from committing a crime, you can still be found guilty. You don't need to be the criminal. An accomplice, though, can still be guilty. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, but he doesn't want to be treated as innocent. And Pilate, he mocks the Jews. He says, behold the man, which is a true statement as the word became flesh. But he's depicted with a crown and a robe as a king. Your man has been punished for him portraying himself and saying things like he is a king. Pilate wants to move on. Pilate doesn't understand the significance, though, of his words. That the man who is before him is truly the king of the world. 
the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of that world. The crowd moved from Hosanna four days ago to crucify him in verse 6. Pilate is disgusted with these Jews. He resents their hatred of Jesus, and the Jews are callous. But Pilate has too a hard heart, too hard to do anything to remove the punishment that will come to Jesus very soon. The Jews wanted, if you recall from chapter 18, to move forward with Passover by not laying hands on Jesus right before so that they might remain pure. But in chapter 19, we see that they are impure. They're impure in heart, getting ready to sacrifice the Passover lamb to end all Passover celebrations. The chief priests become the leaders of the riot in verse 6, where Roman law forbade them from killing Jesus. But Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus himself, and so Pilate avoids the question, and he begins to continue his mocking and taunting of the Jews. If you guys like sports, taunting happens in our world frequently in sports. I think the NBA is the worst because it's very close quarters. You're rubbing shoulders, you're touching each other, you're sweating on each other. It's very intense as you go after a ball. And if you add personal comments and jokes and criticisms and hatred, it doesn't take long for things to escalate in an NBA game. And oftentimes you see at least one time where an NBA player will punch the other NBA player when the intensity increases. Well, here in John chapter 19, it's increasing. Dun, 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 dun. The heat is turned up. The cup is overflowing. In John 18, 38, verse 4, in our passage this morning, and here again in verse 6, Pilate communicates his belief that Jesus is innocent. And the three declarations by Pilate that Jesus is innocent show parallel to Jesus' three declarations that he's the I Am in chapter 18, and also Peter's three denials in chapter 18. The suspense is building. Dun dun. Dun dun. They've been mocked too long, and so the Jews cannot hold back anymore. They're ready to throw their last punch. They chime back in. Jesus is guilty because he declared himself to be God. They are desperate, begging Pilate to kill Jesus because Roman law didn't allow them to do it themselves. And Pilate, he still believes that Jesus is innocent, but the Jews believe he's guilty. What about you? They allude to Leviticus 24, verse 16, which says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And in complete frustration due to Pilate's manipulation and mocking of the Jews, the Jews finally blurt out their real concern. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden when they're confronted by God. We were hiding because we were afraid. After eating the fruit, Adam exclaimed, Well, it was the woman you gave me. Or Eve, the serpent deceived me. No one takes responsibility, but you see out of their heart, their words flow. And we know the real reason for the Jews' hatred. It's their sin. They think Jesus is guilty because they believe they are innocent. But we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The passage that Dave read for us even reiterates some of those things. We cannot not sin. 
And if you don't believe that, we need help in the children's ministry on Wednesday or Sunday. You can go help in the nursery and you can get a real firsthand experience that we all sin. Apart from Christ, we don't choose God. We don't seek after God. We want our idols. We want to even be God's. We break God's law, the Ten Commandments, and others. We see that in our catechism. We push the things of God aside that get in the way. The Bible calls these things idols. For the Jews, Jesus was in, way, in the way of their idols. For the Jews, Jesus would not permit them to have their idols. For the Jews, Jesus had blasphemed God by calling himself God himself. They don't believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as John says next week in chapter 20, therefore they do not have life in his name. And in hearing the Jews' proclamation in verse 8, Pilate becomes afraid. Maybe it's not just lip service. Maybe he really does believe that this man is innocent because he's God. Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent, and we know that ourselves. But now Pilate is becoming unnerved. And he is so moved that he leaves the scene. He goes back to his own chamber, the text says. And Paul's words regarding sin in Romans 1 are more and more true than ever as we think about these Jews and Pilate. Paul says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Pilate sees this foolishness, but as opposed to doing something about it, he shrinks back. He leaves the sheen showing his own foolishness. And Pilate questions Jesus again in verse 9. Where are you from? As a reader, we're, we see this. Dun, 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 dun. We want to chime in. He's from heaven. He is the Son of God. He always has been. And Jesus speaks up, but he answers regarding the authority over the entire scene. He doesn't even answer Pilate's question. He says that God is in control here. All that is taking place is under the authority of the Father. And Pilate is annoyed, probably because the prisoners on death row don't Disregard the questions when they're asked because the man in front of them asking the question can free him. Pilate's authority, though, comes from God, where absolute authority belongs to the sovereign God of the universe. Pilate was delegated authority over Jesus, but he abused it. And for political expediency, the chief priest handed Jesus over to Pilate on trumped-up charges of sedition to secure Jesus' death. But the text doesn't exonerate Pilate as a lesser sinner. What Jesus is saying here is that true authority is from God, delegated to make judgment, conduct actions, to carry out God's ordained will. In some sense, we all have delegated authority. Maybe you're a boss. Maybe you're in charge of a department. Maybe you're just in charge of one spreadsheet at your office. Maybe you're in charge of responsibilities at home. Husbands, we are called to lead in our homes. Elders, we are called to lead in the church. Maybe your authority is minimal. You get one chair. That's all you can do. And the nightstand next to it. Like, that's all you guys can manage in the house that you're permitted to decorate, which you don't want me decorating in the house. I like when my wife does that. But we all have delegated authority because God is in control of everything. The Jews believe Jesus is guilty as blasphemy. Pilate believes Jesus is innocent. The Jews declare 
his guilt and their request for his crucifixion. And Pilate's scared. Maybe he's making a mistake with this innocent man. What one believes about Jesus is innocent and guilt. Innocent and guilt is of utmost importance. Is Jesus innocent or is he guilty in your mind? Let's look at verse 12 as we continue to reflect on that question. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Again, Pilate desires to release Jesus because he's innocent, but Pilate remains an accomplice because he doesn't. The Jews appeal to Pilate based on his identity, his identity as a Roman governor. If you don't crucify Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. The Jews no longer appeal to their law, which they did in the previous section. They appeal to the law of Rome. In John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who believe, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you recall from chapter 18, as Pilate is interrogating Jesus, he's done with the situation. He says to Jesus, well, what is truth? Not wanting to be bothered by the question, what is truth? The truth has not set Pilate free. He doesn't believe. He desires freedom from the burdens of Jesus, though. Caesar's friend was a recognized title for a political supporter of the emperor of Rome. And the Jews leveraged this basically by saying, Pilate, you're a traitor if you're not going to do what we ask. You're no friend of Caesar. But remember what Jesus said about his friends. His friends, not friends of Caesar in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And Pilate chooses to remain a friend of Caesar. By not being a friend of Jesus, Jesus in turn becomes a friend to all who believe in him for eternal life, by laying down his life for you and for me. Because Pilate is a friend of Caesar, Jesus becomes our friend, dying for us, which we'll have more on that shortly. Pilate, he goes out to this judgment seat to render his verdict in verse 13. In verse 14, he mocks the Jews again. Here's your king. Not here is the man that he said previously. Here's your king. Pilate renders judgment on Jesus, judgment on the one who will one day render a just judgment and a just condemnation on Pilate. Jesus said this in John 5, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. It's clear Jesus is not their king. And they shout out again, 
crucify him. Pilate doesn't understand why they would want to crucify their king, but their actions show their heart. Jesus is not their king or their friend. And it's the sixth hour, which the text says, which is when the Jewish work is to cease, to start the Sabbath, where the leaven is gathered and the slaughtering of the Passover lamb is to commence. And some in our story believe Jesus is innocent. Some are adamant that Jesus is guilty. In your mind, is Jesus innocent or is he guilty? If you recall back in April, we looked at the rest of chapter 19 on Good Friday. I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter, but if you want to keep it over, I'm going to reference some of that as we reference and go through the rest of the text. We'll remind us of some of the things we learned on Good Friday, and then we'll wrap it up with some application. In verses 16 to 27, Jesus' death becomes good, Good Friday, because he dies on the cross for our sins of those who do believe in him for eternal life. This is the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a Good Friday, it's the best Friday. It's not a merely good Friday. On the cross, Jesus finally pays for the sins of the world as proclaimed in for 18 chapters in the Gospel of John and by John the Baptist in, John, or in chapter 1. Like a criminal, they crucified Jesus. And crucifixion, like this flogging, was a brutal experience. They lay the prisoner on the ground, on the beam. They stretch out his arms. They nail his hands to the beam. They raise the person up on the cross. They drop this beam into a hole so it'll stay up. And as the beam drops into the ground, the lungs compress and there's no breath left in the person's lungs, if I said that right. Maybe they compress or decompress. I don't know what the technical term is. Maybe some nurses can help me later. You've heard the words excruciating before. It means from the cross. Suffering already from the flogging, crucifixion was a horrible way to die. And one often didn't suffer and die from the nails. They died from suffocating on the cross because they don't have the strength to lift them up to take a breath. And the mocking continues towards the, Jew, uh, towards the Jews with Pilate's sign. We see that in verse 19. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the Jews clearly don't like this title, as we see in verse 20, because he's not their king. And as Jesus perished, his clothes are distributed amongst the executioners. Is he guilty or innocent? Imagine the passerby on the road on their way to celebrate the Passover. They look at this man upon the cross and they're like, whoa, well, he must be a guilty man. We see in verse 25 that his mother Mary is there. Imagine her thoughts. My innocent son dying on the cross. Or in verse 26, John, probably the only disciple who was there at this event, in verse 26, probably thinking, he does not deserve this. On this cross, Jesus was shamefully tortured for the sins of those who would believe in him as a substitution for their sins. Friends, Jesus took our shame so that we don't need to be ashamed like Adam and Eve were in the garden or even like Pilate was in our text this morning. 
And Jesus dies in verse 30, shouting out, It is finished. John records these words so that we can understand that every part of Jesus' death was part of the Father's plan of redemption, even fulfilling Scripture as part of God's plan to say, I thirst. Jesus has fulfilled all sorts of prophecy in this gospel, all sorts of festivals, different types of roles like Moses as prophet or David as king, all sorts of symbols like water and blood and birth, and most importantly, the Passover lamb. And in saying it is finished, he has finished the work on earth that he came to do, to fulfill all scripture, to die in our place on the cross for our sins, and at this moment, here on the cross, the entire work of redemption has been brought to completion. And the sins of those who believe in Him are paid in full. We've seen it over and over. His hour has finally come. The Jews had things to do to celebrate Passover. The Romans didn't care to bring Jesus down. The Jews cared about the laws of Moses again, though which require a man not to be sitting on the cross overnight. So they wanted to break his leg to ensure a quick death. But Jesus was already dead, as we see in verses 32 and 33, where Jesus died silently. In recording these events, John is showing that Jesus' death is a true death. His death is a man, beyond a shadow of any doubt. And not only does Jesus bear our shame, he does so alone. Like I said, John the, Bap or John the Evangelist is probably the only one there with him to watch it. And Jesus is buried in that last section, starting in verse 38, where you have a man, Joseph of Arimathea, mentioned in all four Gospels. And he goes to Pilate. He asks that the body may be taken down and be buried. And Pilate accepted his request to bury Jesus. And again, showing to Pilate's belief that Jesus was innocent, but also a final snub against the Jews. And in verse 39, we see Nicodemus again. In chapter 3, we saw him as a Pharisee. He came at night for fear of the other Pharisees. But now he goes out and he works out in the open. He doesn't care what the Jews or the other Pharisees see. He steps out of the darkness and it emerges into the light to show who he really believes Jesus to be. And these two men take Jesus. They close him up in a tomb. And chapter 19 seems to end very abruptly. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. But we know it doesn't end there. He rises from the dead. We'll see that next week again. We celebrate that every Sunday. So let's circle back to that question I asked at the beginning and I asked a few other times. In your mind, is Jesus innocent? Or is he guilty? We know Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent. Maybe that's where it ends for you. He's just an innocent man who people thought was a king who failed. He failed the system. Maybe you think he's innocent, but he's too close, but it's too costly to do something about it. Maybe it'd be embarrassing to declare, to declare who he is and what he's done. That he is innocent. And to believe that. Maybe you think the words of Scripture are true. Maybe you want to follow the words of Scripture, but you don't want to for some reason. Maybe it's your sin. Maybe like Pilate, maybe you fear not being a friend of Caesar or anyone else. 
You see, Jesus is innocently tortured, but maybe you don't want anything to do about it. Maybe you fear man. Maybe it causes you to think that God is a moral monster, allowing his son to be murdered. What sort of God would do that? Jesus could just be a good teacher to you, worth listening to, maybe even sharing a few tidbits of truth about. Although innocent, maybe you prefer expediency like Pilate and freedom from the burden of knowing the truth about Jesus. In your mind, is Jesus innocent or guilty? Maybe you think he's guilty and he deserved the death because maybe you've been hurt by his people or you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you think he's guilty because he wants to change the way that you live your life and that's uncomfortable. He could be a cool king to follow and you would rather just shout Hosanna, but our posture could be crucify him because I don't like what he calls me to do. Maybe you feel like he hasn't given you what you want and you've given up on him. He's guilty for not healing me or providing for me or caring for me. Once Jesus didn't give the Jews what they wanted, allowing them to keep their idols. So the cross, to the cross, it was for him. They thought he was the king they would have been waiting for. But when he wasn't, their allegiance turned to Caesar. Maybe you've been through something really hard. I can't imagine all of us having a challenging season over the last couple years at all. It's supposed to be a joke. We've all had a challenging season. This passage is very sobering. Maybe you thought life was going to be easier, and it's not. The Jews put palm fronds on the ground and shouted Hosanna, and it turned to palm spikes and a crown, shouting, Crucify Him. Maybe you don't understand how a good and loving God could allow bad things to happen to you. Maybe your questions just aren't answered, and so, until they are, Jesus is guilty in your mind. Maybe you think he isn't who he says he is. Maybe he is guilty because he's a false prophet. You don't believe he truly rose from the dead. He can't save you from your sins, which we'll touch base on next week. In your mind, is Jesus innocent or guilty? And if you've caught on as Christians, we believe he's both. Even today as Christians, I think we fall on one side or the other. We as Christians, we need reminders. And may I suggest the answer to the question, is Jesus innocent or guilty, is yes. For those who believe, the answer is yes. He's innocent, but he's also guilty. And how does that work? Paul says this in Romans 5, right before that passage Dave read for us in our scripture reading. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Or Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
We've seen throughout this gospel that Jesus is God. He's the Word made flesh. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, a life that we were meant to live. He's innocent. Christians believe that because Christians also need reminders of that. Or and Christians need reminders of that. But there are consequences to sin. The wages of sin is death. God would not be just if he didn't punish sin. But Jesus dies in our place on the cross for our sins. Where Jesus is innocent, having never sinned. But God reckons on him the guilt that we deserve on our behalf. He made him to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. For Christians, he's not just innocent. We believe he's guilty. But he's guilty in our place. He's reckoned guilty to save us from our sins, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sins, and one day from the presence of sin. This is what theologians call the great exchange, where God put the wrath that is deserved for us on his son. And in exchange, that great exchange, that righteousness, the perfection, the innocence that Jesus has, God reckons that upon you and me. For Christians, for disciples who believe, he's innocent. He's the perfect substitute because it wouldn't be fair for a sinner to die for a sinner. He has to be perfect. And as an infinite God, Jesus can cover a multitude, an infinite amount of sins. I can only pay for my sins, but Jesus can pay for the sins of everyone who would believe in him as a substitute. For Christians too, disciples who believe, he is guilty. He is the one who is condemned. He is the one who died. He is the one who was crucified. He is the one who bore our sins on that cross. We need reminders of the gospel every day as the church. The world around us needs reminders of every day because of the gospel, because they are bound for eternal conscious torment in hell if they don't believe. It's a good Friday in October, not just because we have global warming and the weather's warm. It's a good day to be reminded of Jesus' payment for our sins. In his death, he's the guilty party, taking all our shame, all our loneliness, all our fears to the cross. In his innocence, he's the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by exchanging himself as the guilty party. And so in your mind, is Jesus innocent or is he guilty? This isn't a sermon where we get five things to do or three things to take away and consider. We have one. God sent his innocent son to be a guilty party as a payment for your sin and for my sin. All other religions of the world require man to do something to appease a deity, to make right standing, to bring something to the table for an atonement. And Christianity is alone because God does it all for us. He's perfectly innocent, but he died as guilty. And he rises. We get to celebrate that next week. We get to celebrate that every Sunday to give us a life we were created to live. By believing this, 
we become his friends. And we see some folks believe in the story. Nicodemus, the former religious leader who called, whose friends called Jesus guilty. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a rich man who had a lot to lose in following Jesus. Who would have called him guilty probably because he would have to give up all that he had on this earth to follow Jesus. Mary, Jesus' mother, who knew he was innocent the whole time. Or John the Evangelist, who wrote all this down so that we might know and we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Those four folks clearly understood that Jesus was guilty, but also innocent. And that's worth praising God for. Pilate desired freedom from the burdens of Jesus. But Galatians 5 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. That's true freedom. That's the freedom that we get to worship God freely, where he has done everything for us, which we don't deserve. He's guilty, and he's innocent. And so let's worship him now. Would you pray with me? Father, this passage is heavy. Uh, and it should be. God, we don't deserve all of the grace that you give to us. We don't deserve the mercy that we receive in exchange for your son's substitution for us. And although the passage shows us how horrible your son suffered and died. It shows us how loving you are by allowing it to happen, ordaining it to happen, and making it happen. And so God, as your people, the only response that we have to this is worship, where we bring nothing to the table to deserve the abundant grace that you have given us. So God, would you help us to remain humble? Would you help us to be thankful? Would you help us to be worshipful? Would you help us to do that right now as we sing, How Great Thou Art. We pray this all in the mighty wonderful name above all names the name that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord God you are our friend you are our Lord you are our Father we thank you and praise you in Jesus name Amen